if we are working with autistic kids, autistic kids are most likely having sensory differences. Therefore, we need to understand those. We need to understand how regulation affects communication because ultimately we cannot do our job when we don't. You know, when a child isn't regulated, they're just not in the optimal state in their brain to be able to listen and learn and use language, you know, just like us as adults. Hi, and welcome to the Early Education Matters podcast with Kara Speech, where we upgrade our knowledge on early speech, language, and child development. My name is Kara Tambellini-Danielson, and I am a speech-language pathologist specializing in early intervention. I have four children's books on Amazon geared toward young talkers, and I also have a course for parents of young children who aren't yet talking called Helping Your Child Communicate. Visit me on Instagram at Kara Speech. I am so excited to bring you interesting discussions with experts on early childhood topics covering ages zero to four, so we can better support our young clients and children. This episode is also offered as a pod course, so if you want to earn professional CEUs for this course, please read the show notes and check out slpconnect.com. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about sensory processing and sensory strategies for SLPs with Jesse Ginsberg. Jesse is a speech language pathologist, and I'm so excited to have her on. I've learned so much from her Instagram account, sensory.slp at Instagram. She shares so many good tips and tricks to help kids with their sensory needs and just kind of a bit of a paradigm shift for speech language pathologists and looking at the whole picture and looking at a child's um, sensory needs along with their language needs as well. So welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. And I love how you explain it as a paradigm shift because that is truly what it is. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about you and how you kind of got started as an SLP and what you're up to now? Yeah, so I am an SLP. I'm also trained in sensory integration. And I started as an SLP assistant and I was out of college, didn't know if I wanted to go into being an SLP. I just, I don't know, it hadn't clicked for me, but I had my hours to be an assistant. So I was thinking, I'll just try this out see how it goes, applied to a zillion jobs, got one, thank God. And this just happened to be this really big clinic in Los Angeles, which was a multidisciplinary clinic. I was trained in floor time, another common you know, approach for autistic kids. And I worked really closely with occupational therapists. And that's really where I started to get the sensory seed planted in me. It was just getting to see the difference in the kids I worked with when I was in the gym and when I was co-treating. And ironically, I wrote my essay when I applied to grad school on sensory, which I just remembered recently, which is kind of a weird full circle moment because then I kind of went back to school and started practicing and it was always in my mind, but, you know, it was It was years into starting my private practice, which is here in Los Angeles, where 
I just felt like I want to know more. I am take, so I started taking all of these sensory classes, webinars, summits, just anything I could find. And they weren't meant for SLPs. They were all OT courses. So I wasn't getting any, you know, continuing ed, anything like that, but I just knew I needed that information. So eventually I just had learned so many things and it had transformed my practice so much that I started writing about my experiences. I started writing some articles for ASHA and there was this huge need for therapists to get more information on this topic. I just learned that there was so much of a need and that's how I ended up creating my Inside Out Sensory Certificate for SLPs, which is a program specifically for SLPs and SLPAs who want to learn more about sensory processing. Oh, that's awesome. And where where are you located right now? And where's your clinic? I'm in Los Angeles, West Los Angeles, called Pediatric Therapy Playhouse. Great. I know it because I used to live in Los Angeles before moving to Vancouver. And now I'm in Austin. So, um, yeah, so I'll just tell the listeners today, this will be a pod course episode. So, uh, SLPs can get, uh, 0.1 CEUs for this episode, go to slpconnect.com to learn more about that. Since it's a pod course episode, we're going to talk about the learning outcomes and then do our financial disclosures. So the learning outcomes are at the completion of this course, we'll have an understanding of why SLPs need to understand sensory processing, the SLP's role in implementing sensory strategies, levels of arousal, and strategies for bringing your clients into their optimal learning zone. And my financial disclosures are, um, I receive payments from Tassel, royalties from my four children's books, payments from my course, helping your child communicate, and I'm the owner of Kara Speech Therapy in Austin, Texas. And Jesse. I am the owner of Pediatric Therapy Playhouse, a clinic in West LA. I'm the creator of the Inside Out Sensory Certificate for SLPs. Those are my financial relationships, non-financial. I am still one of the directors for the California Speech Language Hearing Association, which I'm about to end my, I think it's been four years. So not for long, but for now. Yeah, you're doing so much, Jesse. I'm just amazed. You have... I mean, you have three little kids, right? And your littlest is how old now? He is one. Yeah. So, yeah, one. And then the other two, The my middle is about to turn four and my oldest just turned six. So, yeah. And um, three boys, a lot of craziness. Yeah, it's exciting because I know you post about some of your family life on Instagram and it just looks like you guys have a lot of fun. Yeah, you know what? It's so funny because when people kind of go into Instagram or social media, and I know it's really fun for a lot of SLPs to go that route. And for me, like I have friends who are like, oh, I never post about my kids or my family. And I'm like, well, that's what makes it fun for me, you know? Yeah. Um, So if you guys follow me, that's what you're going to get. A lot of children. (laughs) Well, okay. So let's talk about the first kind of learning objective. So why do SLPs need to understand sensory processing? 
Yeah. After doing lots of sensory coursework, I did, like I said, go through the full sensory integration program, which is at University of Southern California, which is also meant for OTs, but they let some other professionals sneak in there. And some of the information I learned in that program, it just was, it was almost like a, gosh, I don't know if I would say like a light bulb moment, but it was like a moment where I'm like, so I, this makes sense. I'm not crazy. I do need to understand this because in that coursework, we went through the research of autistic adults who reported they have sensory differences. And there's just tons and tons of studies that show that autistic adults, up to 95% of autistic adults report they have sensory differences. Mm. So Based on all of that research, it's safe to assume that that many percentage of kids also have sensory differences. So to me, as a therapist working with autistic kids, and I think, you know, many SLPs work with autistic kids. And if we are working with autistic kids, autistic kids are most likely having sensory differences. Therefore, we need to understand those. We need to understand how regulation affects communication because ultimately we cannot do our job when we don't. You know, when a child isn't regulated, they're just not in the optimal state in their brain to be able to listen and learn and use language, you know, just like us as adults. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine someone um, waking you in the middle of the night and trying to have you take a math test. I use that example because your husband probably loves math. <laughs> right? So imagine someone waking up in the middle like, okay, you gotta take the, you gotta take the GRE right now. You are not gonna perform at your best because you are completely dysregulated. You're like, what? What's going on? My brain is not in a place where I'm ready, you know? Let me sleep eight hours. Let me have five, six cups of coffee. Then mm -hmm. I'm happy to do this. So it's just this idea that it's, it's neurology. It's when we have, um, when we are in a dysregulated state, we are unable to access the part of our brain responsible for, you know, logic, problem solving, creative thinking. So when we have kids with sensory differences, those kids are going to be more prone to being dysregulated. And can you talk a little bit about what sensory differences are. So what are some examples of sensory differences? Yeah, I mean, it's very, I would say, subjective. Um, a lot of really great research was done by Dr. Winnie Dunn, an occupational therapist who is the author of the sensory profile, which is one of the most commonly used sensory assessments. And she actually is a guest lecturer in my program. I thought her work was so incredible that SLPs needed to have access to it. But basically, you know, she did lots of research and it kind of placed kids into a bell curve, right? So if you're thinking about the center of the bell curve, that is how the majority of people process sensory input. So you would be considered just like the majority of others if you fall into that. So, um, you know, if I asked you a question like, are you bothered by bright lights? And the answer was occasionally, that's probably something that the majority of people would say. 
I'm occasionally bothered. Mm -hmm. But we might have an autistic child with a sensitivity to visual input and bright lights bother them frequently or almost always. And then that would place them on one of the tail ends of that bell curve, which is that they are not processing that type of input like the majority of other people. Mm -hmm. So they would either be more sensitive to it or less sensitive to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for a child who is sensitive to sounds, the classroom can be an extremely difficult and dysregulating place. Most kids can be in a classroom and function in a classroom. That's why they're designed, right? Like they are. But for some kids, they can't. They're not in a regulated state when they're around that much, you know, movement, sounds, unpredictable children, yelling, lots of colors, so much that comes with the classroom. So it makes it more difficult for them to be regulated there. Um, but the opposite can be true as well, whereas there might be a child who has a much higher threshold for sensory input, meaning they need more of it in order to register it and mm -hmm. process it. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, you know, I think we all have kids on our caseload where it's like those kids who come in and they're just nonstop on the move. Mm -hmm. So those kids likely have a higher threshold for movement. They need to move more in order to feel the same way we might by moving less. So, you know, we talk about when kids can either be oversensitive or undersensitive. That's what we mean. So our job is to figure out where they are, you know, because kids could have different levels of sensitivity to different types of sensory input. They could be really sensitive to sounds, but less sensitive to movement. Um, and I like the way you put that about it being on a bell curve and thinking about it that way. And um, those who need kind of more input and then those who need less and maybe those that fluctuate between. But um, would you say it's for like tactile, auditory, vestibular, which is movement, and then uh, visual? Are those kind of the four things you look at? Yeah. So then um, all other sensory systems we're missing are taste and smell. Yes. <laughs> you know, may not be as relevant to some of us. I mean, yeah. smell obviously can definitely affect us because we might be in a place where where other like teachers are wearing perfume or mm -hmm. you might be cleaning products that are really hard for kids to um, smell or they're not comfortable for them. But you can imagine how much sensitivities to smell and taste can affect eating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that feeding therapy for autistic kids is a really big field and area of need. Yeah. Um, and then we have our proprioceptive sense, which is the input we get through our muscles and joints. So that's through things like pushing, pulling, biting. That will all that will give us that really good input to our muscles and joints, which can be which is generally a really kind of like calming and organizing feeling for mm -hmm. a child. And then something we don't talk about too often in our field is interoception, which is our 
body's awareness of its internal organs, things like knowing when we have to go to the bathroom, knowing when we're hungry. Mm-hmm. And that has a really strong link to then working on emotions with kids because we know that a lot of autistic kids have trouble identifying their own and others' emotions. So there are some really great resources for how you can help teach kids how to understand what they're feeling inside their body so that they can then associate it with how they might be feeling and what they can do about it. Like knowing if their heart is racing, that may, might mean they're anxious, which means they need to step out and breathe. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. And um, what about kind of validating those sensory needs for kids? How do we go about doing that? I think that is probably one of the easiest and most difficult things we can do. I think like you and I, we're parents. We know how hard it can be sometimes in the day-to-day with our kids. It's like, okay, just put that shirt on. Let's just go. Um, No, you don't need to wear your shoes. We're just walking out, you know, one block or whatever it might be. We can be kind of like rushing kids just to get through the day. Um, But the only way we can really help kids to understand their sensory needs and be able to take that and advocate for themselves in the future is by honoring and validating those You know, sensory needs are, if a child has a sensitivity to something, our goal is not to increase their tolerance. Our goal is to accommodate them and then teach them how to ask for those accommodations. So it might be something as simple as instead of saying, no, that shirt's not itchy, it's soft. Look, feel it. It's, yeah, that does seem like it might be itchy. Let's get another shirt. Mm Mm-hmm. Or instead of, no, it's not bright, you're going to be fine. We say, yeah, the sun's out today. Let's go get sunglasses or a hat for you to wear. You know, so it's it's just about, you know, I think we are constantly invalidating kids throughout the day, whether we mean to or not. You know, we're trying to just make them comfortable um, by telling them that everything is fine. It's all fine all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in reality you know, what all they want is to be seen and heard. They just want to be validated just like any of us. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I see that in, you know, with my daughter too, because she can have some pretty high sensory needs. For example, we went to the pool and she forgot her goggles. She was so upset about it. And I was like, okay, we made it all the way to the pool. I'm meeting some friends. Just you can go in the water without goggles. It's fine. And I'm trying to just like get her in. But until I kind of just said, yeah, it's really a bummer. We forgot your goggles. You hate going in the water without goggles. I get it. You can choose to either go in or sit on the chair. Once I kind of did that and let her process that, she was able to kind of move through it. But my my initial thing was, you're fine. Just go in without, <laughs> without goggles. And um, I feel like, yeah, doing that to, you know, our clients and then to our children, you know, just kind of being mindful of of when we're doing that and how to kind of step in and, and do some validating instead. Totally. And I like to think of, you know, examples of that. Um, it's like if you come downstairs in the morning and you're like, oh, my gosh, I did not sleep well. And then your significant other just says like, you're going to be fine. Just go. You have to go to work. 
You know, it's like, we don't want to hear you're going to be fine. Um, we want to hear, oh, that sucks. It's hard to work when you're tired. Yeah. So, so it's like we so often come to kids when they, when we see these, you know, quote problems, we want to give them so many solutions, you know? It's like, oh, you don't have your goggles. Okay, let's go. My strategy for that is let's go the lost and found and get a bear, right? But it's like, oh, let's go look for some. You can keep your head above the water. I can give you my hat to wear. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you can borrow your friend's goggles. But, you know, kids, they won't even be receptive to listening to those solutions until you validate them first. It's like they have to hear that. And once they hear that, then they will move to a place where they're regulated mm-hmm. and then you can go into logic. The problem is that when kids are dysregulated over something in whether it's a sensory or an emotional um, trigger, you know, they're not in the place in their brain where they have access to that logical problem solving conversation that you want to have. You really have to calm them down. Um, and one way to do that is really by validating them and then moving into having those solutions focused type of conversations. Yeah, I love that. And it's funny because all those solutions you said, I I did go through each one of them and not yes. <laughs> until I was like, OK, this is my reality. This is her reality right now. We validate her. You know, whatever this turns out to be, it turns out to be if she doesn't get in the pool, that's just how it is. And then. um I think it's important to like notice too, and I don't know what you think about this, but when you validate a child, that's not necessarily a quick fix. You know, you're validating them and they still are sitting with these big emotions that you're trying to sit with and observe and, and just be that strong, calming for calming presence while they're having those emotions. But it's still going, it's still going to take a bit to get to that regulated state. What do you think about that? Totally. And I have also my oldest, he has so many sensory sensitivities, lots of big feelings, lots of like, you know, emotions are a big thing. And like my middle child, he could be upset over something and then 10 seconds later be laughing hysterically. But older son needs that time. You know, it doesn't work to just try to like distract him um, or move on. And then more than that, he'll want to talk about it later. It's like something might happen in the day and then we come back to it at bedtime and he says something that makes me think like, oh, he is still processing this, Mm -hmm. you know? So kids, um, they're, it's so individualized, you know, for every child. But I think the important thing is that, you know, it's really incredible to see all these therapists who are diving into neurodiversity affirming practices and have you gone into that at all I know you're this is new these episodes are new um I haven't done an episode on that yet no no so you know neurodiversity affirming practices are essentially saying that you know all brains are different and just because one brain functions one way and another function another functions another way doesn't mean this one is good and that one is bad um it doesn't mean you know neurotypical brains are good autistic brains are bad and deficient it means autistic brains are different and they function differently and that's something that we should respect and embrace because having variations in brains in society is a good thing Mm. um So, 
for us to, you know, for therapists who are really trying to become more neurodiversity affirming, understanding and validating kids' sensory needs are such an important part in that, you know, because like I said, we're not trying to change them. We're trying to support them. And there's a big difference in that. I mean, I just had a, I just posted a video and um, a parent saw, I have these fluorescent or not fluorescent, they're light covers. So they're like magnetic fabric that goes over the lights to dim them. And I had a parent comment saying, if my kid had a light sensitivity, I wouldn't buy those. I would buy a tanning bed. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that is going to trigger a lot of people. Um, but that's the point is that you can't change that in a person. Um, the goal isn't to increase tolerance. The goal is not to decrease sensitivity um, because it's just not how it works. You know, when we don't validate kids' di sensory differences, we break, we're breaking their trust and you can't get anything um, you can't get anywhere with kids when they don't trust you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering, what do you say to someone who like their child is having a very hard time getting a haircut and they don't want to get a haircut and, um, what, what kind of strategies? Cause okay, you're validating it's, you know, you don't like the sound of the scissors. You don't like the fact that some of your hair is coming off. You don't like the new environment. So what kind of like um, sensory, like respecting their sensory needs and differences, how would you go about helping them get a haircut? For example, I think there's a lot that goes into that, but I think if you ask that question to a group of either autistic adults or either like parents who are really neurodiversity affirming, the first question that you would probably get is why does he need a haircut? Mm -hmm. okay. Right? There's yeah. Like a big push within the neurodiversity movement of like, if things are unnecessary, why? And yeah. I'm not saying that's always an option. You know, sometimes kids need haircuts. Um, so I think there's so much that goes into that, but planning is going to be one of the most important things. And, you know, I could speak to this because that was something my son hated. He hated um, getting haircuts. And we figured out specifically what it was. One, which he wasn't able to say because he was too young, but we played around with it. One was the buzzing mm -hmm. noise. Two, he doesn't like people he doesn't know being close to him. Three, um, he doesn't like the feeling of the hair falling onto his neck and all over his body. That was a, a huge one. So um, we tried in noise canceling AirPods while using the buzzers, which worked for like a couple of haircuts. But then we decided we don't need the buzzers. We will just use scissors. So um, then I think it was um, my fiance, Chris, who came up with the idea of like putting something around um, his neck, like a towel with like something under it that would catch the hair so that it wouldn't fall onto his back. Um. So I think there's, you know, it's it just is so individualized as what aspect of that bothers them and are there ways that they can be involved in coming up with the solutions to help. Yeah, I love that. And I think I love how you kind of really investigated. Okay, so what is it? What is it that he's not liking? How can I make that more comfortable for him or more like easier to be tolerated? 
Yeah. Because honestly, it became a thing where I was like, you know what? This started when he was young. He was probably three. But my son's hair grows faster than anyone on this planet. Like he got his first haircut at like five months old because his hair was down to his nose. <laughs> um, and he's a baby. He couldn't like push his hair back, you know? Um, so, but it was like, I had the mentality of, oh, don't worry. It's going to be super quick. Um, I started doing it at home, by the way. That was one of our solutions. Um, but it became progressively worse. Every time, every month it was time for the haircut, it got harder and harder. So like just trying to have the idea of, oh, this is going to be a quick, don't worry, you're fine. Let you just do this is not a long-term solution. Maybe it's a short-term solution. Mm -hmm. Great. I, I think you gave some really good points there. Um, and so just to kind of shift gears a bit, what is the SLP's role in implementing sensory strategies? Yeah, I love this topic because I can't even tell you how often I hear like, oh, it's not in our scope. We can't do it mm -hmm. or refer to an OT or I even have a Facebook group called sensory SLPs. And it's funny to me when someone posts a question and then the first comment is go ask your OT. I'm like, hello, why do you think we're in this Facebook group called Sensory SLPs? It's so we can help each other. Um, so that always makes me laugh. But the thing is that are OTs helpful for us? 100%. Like I would never say, oh, this kid doesn't need OT because they have me. Um, the thing is that up until, you know, Recently, our choice was, okay, a kid's dysregulated in our session. He's always dysregulated. What can I do? Refer to OT. Okay, great. He'll see OT 30 minutes a week, an hour a week. But what are we going to do the other however many hours are in the week? You know, um, 30 minutes of OT focused on sensory per week is not what's going to solve all of our problems. It's not necessarily going to make them regulated in our session. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing that I really learned through a lot of my coursework is the reason why SLPs use sensory strategies is different than the reasons OTs use sensory strategies, you know, um, sensory processing plays a huge role in, you know, motor planning, which affects kids, gross motor skills, fine motor skills, activities of daily living. You know, if they're having trouble the way uh, perceiving the way a button feels, it's going to be hard to get dressed. Mm -hmm. um, if they're having trouble adjusting, I'm trying to use less um, aggressive terms, trying to use more basic terms. If they're having trouble, you know, adjusting the amount of pressure um, when they are pushing on things, they're going to be breaking pencils all the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the reason OTs use sensory might be for all of these different reasons, but the reason we use sensory strategies is so that we can get our kids regulated, engaged, and communicating. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. we cannot do our job of, of improving communication when a child is not regulated. So to me, the answer was obvious. It's we need them to be regulated. So we need to know how to do that so that we can get the most out of our sessions and so that the child can get the most out of the session. And 
another um, kind of light bulb moment came for me not too long ago when I just realized the huge link between SLPs, sensory, and self-advocacy, you know, because we want kids to learn their sensory needs so that they can then advocate for themselves in the future. Mm-hmm. Who is Who are the therapists? Who are the professionals who teach kids how to communicate their needs? You know, we do. We can teach us how to communicate. So if we can help kids to understand their sensory needs, then we can also work on helping them learn to advocate for those needs. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And I like what you said about kind of when kids are regulated, they're able to learn and focus because in order to learn, I feel like you have to give focused attention to tasks or to whatever, to learning material got to be focused and give that attention when a child is dysregulated their focus and attention is not on learning it's more on trying to regulate and I think it's just always important to have that in the back of your head you know sometimes I see people try to engage kids when they're just not regulated and it's it's just it's a bit of an uphill battle and it's not fair to the kid and um I think kind of looking at the big picture, like, okay, let's try to make this kid feel safe and secure so that they can learn, right? Yeah. What do you think? Oh, 100%. And it's it's hard for us because we have this expectation on us of what therapy is going to look like, what speech therapy looks like. Speech therapy looks like this kid sitting at a table and doing an activity and being a per- little compliant angel (laughs) you know um so I think that when we have kids come in they're dysregulated parents are staring at us we're like oh well what am I going to do how am I going to target my goals they're looking at me they want me to get something out of this session and it's such a mindset issue for us because we feel pressured to just continue working on language even when a child is dysregulated so I think what helps to take that pressure off is by having very open conversations with the family, you know, about why the child is not in a place where he's ready to learn right now and how our main goal needs to get them back to a regulated state. And I always give examples to parents of um, how it might be for them, you know, because I think that's a lot easier for parents to understand. But I might be like, you know, imagine you just spent two days nonstop at Disneyland with your kids and you're just there 12 hours a day. All you want to do is go home, turn off the lights and get a glass of wine, put the kids to bed and sit in the dark. (laughs) No, it's like you get to regulate yourself. But imagine a child who is in that frantic, frenzied state all the time and doesn't get to get time to get back on track to get into a regulated state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I like kind of that perspective taking piece of thinking about like, okay, how would this make me feel? Um, And I actually haven't thought about kind of giving, explaining it like that. So that's very helpful, Jesse. Yeah, Um, I think like if a child has specific sensitivities, those are really easy examples to give to parents too. Like, you know how your son always 
covers his ears when we flush the toilet. You know, imagine if you were on the tarmac behind a plane as it's about to take off. Like to him, that sound is it's more intense for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big misconception we have that um, kids just have bigger reactions to specific types of sensory inputs but in reality they are processing that completely differently a child sensitive to sound they are actually hearing that sound at a greater intensity yeah it's not just that they're reacting to it and you know i just recently interviewed two different autistic um therapists a speech therapist and then uh basically an autistic life coach and um They both had said to me how when they were growing up, they used to say that loud sounds were painful, but they always had people say like, no, no, it's just loud. It doesn't hurt. But that led them to grow up, you know, not trusting their body because they're being told, no, it's not. It doesn't hurt. It's just loud. Mm -hmm. But because um, they had sensitivity to sound, that's how it felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Get back in with the validation piece. Yeah, definitely. And just kind of understanding that people process the environment so differently. Like it's so hard because we only are in this one body and we're perceiving the world through our own senses. But everybody else, like I always think it would be so interesting to just have like a little slice in somebody else's body just to be like, oh my gosh, this is how you are perceiving these colors. This is how you're perceiving this sound. Like we just get this one perspective. So it's um, so interesting. And I think so helpful to kind of just always keep that in mind. Like they are perceiving the world. Everybody's perceiving the world in a different way. And we just have to kind of be mindful and not say like, oh, this isn't a problem because it's not a problem for me. Yeah. Seek to understand first. Yeah. Um, And I know we talked about a bit about the levels of arousal. Can you talk a bit more about the levels of arousal and how SLPs can, can recognize that in, um, yeah. What are, yeah, this is one of my favorite things to teach SLPs who are just kind of getting their toes wet. Is that the right expression? Feet wet? Those dipping their toe in the sensory world. So I learned about this when I was an SLPA and it was just, um, oh my gosh, so game-changing for me to understand this because I used to have this little boy who would come into sessions and he just kind of seemed like a little zoned out, passive, wandering around. Um, He wasn't hard to control. It's not like he was moving all over, couldn't keep up with him. But he would just seemed like a little bit um, checked out, I guess, for lack of a better word. And then the OT had pointed out to me, you know, it's just he has a really low level of arousal right now. And then we took him into the gym. We started swinging him around, spinning it a little bit. And it was like he had this light in his eyes and he was so engaged and um so much more communicative and that was one of the kids I wrote about in my essay for grad school because it was such a difference when we were able to give him some input that helped to increase his level of arousal into more of an optimal zone where we need to be when we're communicating 
But for so many kids who, you know, first of all, we all, it's very normal for us to go through these different levels of arousal throughout the day. Like we wake up, we all have low arousal. It's not like we just like wake up and jump out of bed and go, it's great to be alive. (laughs) Maybe, maybe you're one of those people. You're like me, you roll out of bed, your arousal so low, you go have like five, six cups of coffee. That's what brings you, that's what brings me to my optimal. My optimal level of arousal is getting some coffee, getting some movement. Um, But then we also have a high level of arousal, which is also um, a state that's not optimal, which can happen when, you know, something really stressful happens that might trigger a spike in our level of arousal. So we might wake up low, get some coffee, go to work. We're in a pretty optimal zone while we're at work. Something really stressful happens. We miss a deadline. We jump to that high level of arousal, but then we are able to continue on and bring ourselves back to an optimal state mm-hmm. but for a lot of our kids they almost kind of have a tendency to live more in either a lower level of arousal or a higher level of arousal so their baseline level may not be optimal mm-hmm. uh, their baseline level might be low their baseline level might be high um for a kid who has high arousal it's going to be that kid who comes in non-stop on the move um, go, go, go. Mm -hmm. And for that type of a child, we are going to need to really help calm them down and give them tools to be able to use throughout the day to calm them down so that they can get down more into this optimal kind of level. So, um, and, and people can fluctuate, like I said, you know, high and low and, and we'll we'll see that a lot. And that's really common throughout the day too. But in my practice, I've seen, you know, for the most part, I'll have kids where they tend to kind of be more low level arousal when they come to my sessions or more high. And that could depend on the time of the day. That could depend on what activities they've done first. Um, and lots of factors. And high level of arousal doesn't just have to be like, an anxious level but could it also be just like really excited and laughing and like just like being really excited about things for yeah if it's almost to the point where it's like so excited that it's distracting you from whatever it is you're doing Mm -hmm. you know like you might see kids who are so excited um to the point where they're no longer engaged because it's become such a distraction Mm -hmm. Um, but generally when we're thinking about, you know, low, optimal and high, what happens in the high zone is fight or flight. So our kids who are more anxious usually tend to sit more toward that top of that band, um, toward the high level where something really small could happen, but push them over into fight or flight, which would cause them to you know, completely shut down. Yeah, that makes sense. I like to think about Eeyore compared to Tigger. Eeyore is our low level of arousal, low energy um, type of kid. And then Tigger is our high nonstop on the move, lots of energy type of kid. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. 
And then, so what are some strategies for bringing kids into their optimal learning zone or optimal, you know, that middle level so that that's right. The best space to be for learning and, and gaining new information and Definitely. That is definitely our goal is to get kids to that level. So at the most basic level, what you can think about is, is this child coming in with a lower level of arousal? And if that's the case, our job is to give them alerting input, alerting strategies, which we'll talk about to bring them more into that optimal zone. But for kids who come in with a higher level of arousal, our goal is to give them calming input. Mm-hmm. And what's hard about this is it feels very counterintuitive because energy is contagious and we feed off of other people's energy. Um, it's like when you go to a basketball game and the home team scores and everyone's on their feet and you're clapping and you're cheering and you don't even follow sports, but you're like, this is fun and everyone is standing and now I'm excited, right? Compared to um, you go into the office and someone's like, oh, I hate it. It's Monday. I'm so unhappy. And then all of a sudden everyone is upset. That's like, um, Chris taught me this, the bad banana, like one brown banana makes all the other bananas go brown. <laughs> and yeah. Every friend group has a bad banana. <laughs> You know, I love when you say energy is contagious because I definitely feel that. And, and I always like one of my mottos, you know, in my therapy sessions is just to kind of bring like a light, calm, like happy energy to, to my sessions with, with kids and parents, like with parents too. Uh, Because I find that if I start with that, it helps to kind of set the tone for the whole thing so I definitely feel yeah and I could I could have told you that because I could just tell like you have a very calming presence some people just do and the people with that type of calming presence tend to do really well with the kids who are those high level of arousal kids because they just naturally have that energy um whereas for me I um wrote an ASHA article recently I could give you guys the link to it but I talk about this little girl I saw for years and it was the last kid of my day 4 30 p.m I'd sit at my desk just like tapping my fingers waiting for her to just blaze through the clinic door <laughs> because they wouldn't check in because there was never time for that she would go open multiple doors to get back here start going into other people's therapy rooms then come into mine, scale this bookshelf behind me, try to get my pink kinetic sand, go to my desk, eat any food I had left for my day, try whatever coffee I had on my desk. And this was like every week, you know, that's why I could tell you this because this wasn't a one-time thing. And then I would be like, what am I going to do? Like, I have to outfun her. I have to have more energy. I have to be more fun. The only way I'm going to engage her is by being super fun with high affect. So I would sing hello with high affect and big energy and big gestures and lots of movement. And what took me so long to realize, which is why I like the 
talk to therapists about this because it could save you so much time struggling is that, you know, all I was doing was she was coming in with this high energy. I was giving her high energy back and we were just escalating each other up, up, up until we're both dysregulated. Then the session is a whirlwind. She leaves. I'm sweating. <laughs> I'm in, driving home going like, what happened? <laughs> I'm not helping her. This is hard. I Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And um, you know what? Such a cycle. Yeah. Was when I realized I need to approach this differently, I I don't need to give her my energy I need to give her my calm so I started having her come in I would sing hello really really softly I might put her in my lap give her a really tight slow hug we would rock back and forth as we sang and that made a huge difference um not only for her but for me because I think you get so caught up in the moment and that that frantic energy is so hard to get rid of sometimes but when you actually slow down you're doing yourself a favor you are getting yourself regulated um jesse i love that and i was laughing because i have definitely been there with clients in my career and what would happen is i would get so nervous that they weren't kind of doing the things i had planned or what am i going to do so then my energy got kind of like up and more nervous and more aroused like to that high level because i was like oh my gosh how am i going to get them into the session how am i going to uh, make sure they're uh, accessing like the goals that we've done and and so yeah i've definitely been there and it did take me a while as well throughout my career to kind of learn that regulation piece of me kind of demonstrating the um, energy that I kind of want to elicit from the child or I want the child to kind of get into that calming space so then I have to myself be calm and that's the same with kind of parenting as well like I can't expect my daughter to calm down eventually about something she's upset about if I'm super worked up about it so yeah I mean that's a topic I love the the fact that we all think that the goal is self-regulation, like, oh, kids need to be able to self-regulate. It's like, no, three-year-old kids, it's really hard for them to self-regulate. They need us. They need to co-regulate. They need us to share their calm. They need us to help them get through things. And, you know, everyone has this goal of self-regulation, but people never stop co-regulating. Like you might have a hard day, you call your mom on the way home to talk about it. We always use people uh, to help regulate ourselves. So why should we expect our kids to just be able to magically do that by themselves? And, um, you know, I should say in the case of other kids, like that was a little girl who was a high level, who had a higher level of arousal, but um, we all also have plenty of kids who might have a lower level of arousal, which are those kids who come in and they're like the easygoing kids. And we might go, ah, oh, like, oh, yes, I just get to sit. He's so we're just going to chill today. He'll do whatever I put in front of him. Um, may or may not be like super engaged, but he'll hang out with me. 
you know, and I think we tend to see those kids and like go, ah, now I could just relax. But it's actually those kids who need us to get, give them more energy. You know, those are the kids who um, need that alerting input. And I will never forget this little boy. I had a therapist in my practice and she asked me to come see this little boy. And she was like, I just don't know what it is. I feel like there's so much more that I'm not getting from him. And, but she's like, he's so easygoing. He'll do anything, you know, he'll play with whatever I put in front of him. So I came into the session and he was sitting at the little kid's table and he was truly just like sitting. So I took his arms, one of my favorite things, and I took his hands and shook them. I call it spaghetti arms. And I sang, gave him spaghetti arms, lots of energy. And it was just like a completely different kid. It was like he was laughing, engaged. Um, he was communicating so much more. And all it took was just giving him that little bit more ener of energy. I love that. Can you tell um, the listeners and me some more alerting strategies that you might do for a child that is coming in with some low arousal? Yeah. So I get asked a lot, what activities can I do um, if I need to do something alerting? What activity can I do if it needs to be calming? And that is always, my answer is always, it's really not the activity. It's how you do the activity. Mm -hmm. Any activity could be calming. Any activity could be alerting. So some kind of rules of thumb would be if you want an activity to be alerting, you can increase the intensity of whatever kind of sensory input. So if it's, if it's sound, you know, louder sound, if it's lights, brighter lights or flashing lights or more color, if it's um, movement, more movement, greater, bigger pushes on the swing. So we can increase the intensity of the input we're giving. We could increase the speed of it. You know, when we push kids fast on the swing, it's going to be more alerting than pushing them slowly. Um, and we can make things less predictable, like pushing them around in unpredictable ways. We can choose things that are new to them because anytime that we're presented with new activities or new environments, we always just automatically increase our level of arousal a little bit. It's like when yeah. you um, get off the plane in a new city you've never been to and you're trying to orient yourself and figure out where things are, you just automatically kind of increase your level of arousal um, when you're somewhere new or doing something new. I like that one a lot because I think it's really important to kind of in therapy sessions, have incorporate something novel just to kind of, because I find it really helps to increase engagement and interest. And yeah, I didn't think about it from like a level of arousal perspective, but. Yeah. And then, you know, the opposite, if you take those examples, the opposite would be true to make things calming. You know, when we do things really slowly and really rhythmically with less intensity, more predictability that will be calming. So, um, you know, you might, a question I get a lot is what if I have kids in a group who have different levels of arousal? You know, it could be 
okay, we're gonna we're gonna use the tunnel now. And for the first kid who had a who has a low level arousal, I might say, I want you to go through the tunnel as fast as you can. Ready, set, go. And maybe like shake the tunnels. They're going through the tunnel. Um, and like give them tickles when they get to the end of the tunnel. Whereas the next kid, I might say, okay, I want you to crawl through the tunnel as slow as you can. And I'm lowering my energy, my voice when I'm giving the instructions. And then when they get through the tunnel, I might give them like a big, deep pressure squeeze. Yeah. You know, so it could be like five little monkeys with lots of jumping and lots of crashing. Um, or it could be five little monkeys while rocking and singing really slowly and softly. I really like that. Um you know, because you say any activity, we can kind of adapt it to be either alerting or calming and kind of based on what that child needs at the moment. That's a really cool way to look at it and to kind of have it in the back of our minds. Like we don't need to have like a toolbox of these are my alerting strategies. These are the calming strategies. We can kind of be creative and make one alerting or calming. Yeah, I think that's always been my goal in helping therapists through my sensory program is like people want the answer they're like I have this kid what should I do and it's like I could tell you what I've done in similar situations but that doesn't mean it's going to help you know what our goal is is to help therapists develop those critical thinking skills where you can think on your toes in a session and you could have a kid come in and you don't care what level of arousal they come in with because you already know how to help them no matter how they come in, you know, and you're able to adjust the strategies that you're using based on how they are that day. So it's really so much more about just developing that critical thinking and flexibility than having like a toolbox of let me try this, check, check, check. Yeah. And um, I like what I've kind of have been looking through your Instagram and I like one of the things that you say too is about giving like a proactive sensory break like looking and kind of checking where your client is um, or the child is and seeing like oh are they getting too overwhelmed or are they not alerted enough let me try to incorporate some sort of sensory break can you talk a bit more about that yeah I was just through our program we do a lot of coaching with our therapists who are in it. And I just felt like I was seeing this pattern of questions come up and it's something I see all the time. But what I was realizing and the question I was then reflecting back to a lot of therapists is, you know, how can we be more proactive in addressing these sensory needs and less reactive? Because a lot of the times we are seeing behaviors that are a result of some kind of sensory dysregulation. And then we are trying to help them get back to a regulated state, you know, but how can we, how can we avoid that? Like our goal shouldn't be, let's do whatever we want. And when he's dysregulated, I'll have the tools to bring him back to a regulated state. It should be I know this kid so well that I know what his triggers are and I am going to avoid those triggers. I'm going to try to, you know, maintain his regulated state as long as possible. 
But what I just was seeing so much, I think, was the misuse of sensory breaks. It was like, oh, the kid's dysregulated. Let's give him a break. It's like, mm-hmm. well, can you give him that break 30 minutes ago? You know, that could have prevented this from happening. It could have been used proactively and preventatively rather than reactively. And um, that would be such so much more comfortable for a child to go and be in their day-to-day if it wasn't always like you know light fire put out fire light fire put out fire it's like how do we keep them more regulated throughout the day yeah I really like that perspective and um, I like how you're talking so much to um, speech language pathologists about this because um, I definitely think there's a need and I think that your um, page is so popular because um, SLPs and parents too can get so much great information from you and learn so much about, um, you know, just that shift in looking at things from a sensory perspective and what the child's level of arousal and how we can support them. Um, And I think it's so great. So can you tell the listeners a bit more about your course and how they can find you. And um, I know you have a lot of uh, offerings like your clinic and everything. So yeah, I'm on online on social Instagram, TikTok is sensory.slp. That's also our website, sensorySLP.com. Um, but yeah, our program is a program specifically for SLPs who want to be able to learn a lot more about sensory processing, be able to assess kids and then develop treatment plans with really awesome support and coaching along the way and you can also find us on youtube my fiance chris and i have a weekly live show called making the shift and we talk about all different types of neurodiversity affirming practices and approaches so that's been really fun as well and getting to talk to more autistic friends and colleagues and and such a great learning experience for us Great, Jesse. Thank you so much. I have really enjoyed this interview with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave a review and let your friends and colleagues know about the Early Education Matters podcast. You can connect with me on Instagram. You can find me at Kara Speech, C-A-R-A-S-P-E-E-C-H. From my link in my profile, you can find links to my children's books and a link to my course, Helping Your Child Communicate. This episode was a pod course episode. You can earn 0.1 ASHA CEUs for this episode. Download the full handout, watch the video playback, and ask questions in a private SLP community. Visit slpconnect.com and register for a yearly or monthly membership to get ASHA CEU submission and so much more. Use my code CARASPEECH, C-A-R-A-S-P-E-E-C-H, for about 20% off your membership. Thank you so much for listening.